to worship you. And so would you teach us today, renew us by the power of your word spoken to our hearts by your spirit. Would you work in each one of us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and have a seat. Just mentioning the month of March 2020 is enough to send shivers up and down most of our spines, right? I bet that you all remember what you were doing when the world shut down. You remember what got interrupted, paused, canceled, or virtualized overnight. I remember what I was doing. And I remember what we were up to as a church at that time, before we were so rudely interrupted. We were talking about worshiping God. We were doing a sermon series on the most important part of our mission statement as a church, which you would see all over the place, on your bulletins, on their website, everywhere, to worship God is first and foremost. And today... I want to finally resume that series and wrap it up as I left some things unsaid, I believe. However, show of hands, how many of you came to Calvary in the last three years? Quite a lot of you, right? Also, for those who have been here longer than that, how many of you remember exactly what I said three years ago? (laughs) Ouch. No, just kidding. That's totally what I expected. (laughs) That means that this is either totally new to you or it's old news that you've likely forgotten by now. Therefore, I thought it best first to give you a solid summary of what we talked about for about three months, three years ago. And so that's what we're going to be doing this week and next. We're going to give a summary, just a crash course on worshiping God. And today to do that, we'll be hopping around a bunch of scripture. So first I'll ask you to open up with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to jump right in for sake of time. I think we're going to cover about three sermons worth of material this morning and the time of one, hopefully. So, but we have to begin though with not how to worship, but how we can worship at all as I have a feeling that most of us often take this incredible ability that God has given us completely for granted. What makes us able and gives us the right to approach God's throne in the first place? Well, like most Sunday school answers, the short answer is Jesus. Here's the point, though, that Jesus makes worship knowable, possible, and desirable through the gospel. All right? Jesus makes worship knowable, possible, and desirable through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus. Now, before going any further, let me quickly define what I mean by worship, because there's a lot of confusion around this. Today, worship can refer to just religious practices people have, or within church, to to church services, to singing in particular, to a musical genre even. 
And then we hear ideas like worship with your lifestyle. And that confuses us even more. Thus, I think that worship has come to mean some nebulous notion of devotion to God. Here's how I attempt to define worship so that we can truly know what it is and how to do it. All right, so at its core, worship is coming before God into his presence, responding to him, so to his person and to his works, in order to glorify him. Okay, that's worship at its core. It's coming before God, responding to him in order to glorify him. We love God through our worship. We honor him, praise him, thank him, serve him, all of which ascribes value and worth to him. We try to express how great he is. That's worship. Uh, Most of you are likely familiar with the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, which is found here in John 4, where you've turned to. And if not, Jesus has this very surprising and powerful encounter with a Samaritan woman. And over the course of discussing a variety of topics with her, they talk about worship. See, the Samaritans, who were half-Jewish, had developed a system of worship that was partially based on the Jewish system, but had also become very distinct from it. And so there was all these questions about worship and if whether they were doing it the right way. So when the Samaritan woman sensed that Jesus, in this discussion, was a, was a prophet from God, she decided to pick his brain on this hot-button topic in their area. And we'll pick it up in verse 19. It says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that, it, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So, you get what's going on here? This woman knew that worship should be central in the lives of God's people. But what was the proper way? What was the proper place to worship? It's like you've got your holy place for worship. We've got ours. Who's got it right? Now, you might suppose Jesus, as a Jew, would respond with, well, the Jews obviously have it right. But no. He basically says, the place you worship is soon to be beside the point. Look what he says, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we see in this passage how Jesus makes worship knowable. Did you see what he said in verse 22? He said, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, 
for salvation is from the Jews. Now, it's undeniable that the Jews had certain spiritual advantages. They had, an, they had more knowledge of worship because God's salvation was coming through them. They had more scripture, more prophets, more revealed truth from God, which meant, according to Jesus, his Jewish kin worshipped what they knew. But did you see that why they knew is because salvation was coming through them? How did that happen? Well, were people going to be saved because they would become Jewish and they'd start worshiping in all the right ways and all the right places? No. Jesus was clear that ethnicity and location weren't the goal or the point. So how did salvation come through the Jews? It came through Jesus. And through Jesus coming to earth, living the life, the, the perfect life that we fail to live, dying the death we deserve to die, and then rising again to secure eternal life for us. And this gospel is what makes the right worship of God knowable to everyone now. It's the same gospel that, that you and I get to respond to today but with, with faith in him that will save us. Through Jesus, all God's blessings go beyond just the Jews and out to the rest of the world. So through Jesus, worship blows out the walls of a physical temple and a geographic temple and goes global. We can now worship him anywhere, anytime, from our spirits, in truth, Jesus is who made this known. Pastor and author Bob Coughlin explains that Jesus was saying that our worship would no longer require animal sacrifices, Levitical priests, or holy places. In a single conversation, he relocated the place of worship from the Jerusalem temple to himself. Our meeting place with God, the place we now worship, is the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. The implications are staggering. There's nothing about our worship of God that isn't defined or affected by Jesus Christ. So, so do you see what I mean by saying Jesus makes it not only knowable, but also possible to worship? Like, think about it this way. There's, there's something that prevents us from approaching God on our own. At least it's preventing us from approaching God and living to tell a tale. Because God is perfectly holy, transcendently set apart from his creatures, from all evil. And while we, on the other hand, are deeply and thoroughly defiled by our sin, our symbol of nature and our behavior. And if sin approaches perfect holiness, it must be destroyed. God cannot tolerate it without ceasing to be holy or ceasing to be God. Think of what Psalm 24 asks. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And why would we want to stand in his holy place? To worship him, right? So who can do it? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Not a single one of us can live up to that standard. 
which means that the only way we can approach God is, if one, if we're purified, and two, if we're escorted there. We're brought there by someone who's holy. And those are precisely what Jesus does for us. Keep your place in John 4, but flip over to Hebrews 9 and 10 with me. Hebrews 9 and 10, and these passages tell us how special God's holy presence was, even for Israel, starting at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 9. By the way, as I flip through these, the page number will be on the screen if you want to flip really quickly. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. Excuse me. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. It goes on in verse 5 to say that of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Like, that's how holy it was. It was unspeakably glorious, God's presence on earth. It was also secluded and separated. People weren't just allowed to to waltz in. In order for people to enter, something actually had to die. A priest had to make a sacrifice. And even then... Verse 9 tells us, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So it's insufficient. Why couldn't people enter God's holy presence? It's because they were not fully purified or perfected by their sacrifices. But then Jesus came and he changed everything. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now that word for serve there at the end is often translated as worship. So, Jesus' perfect death purifies us so we can rightly worship and serve the Lord. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And now he escorts us into God's very presence bridging the infinite gap between God and man. The Bible calls him our great high priest and our mediator. Verse 15 says, Therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant. Verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Ever 
forgotten your username or password to some site or app, get this access denied message. Without Jesus being our mediator, it's like we would get a continual access denied whenever we try to approach God's presence to worship. In essence, he is our username and password. Our access to God is not based on our performance, on our practices, or on our potential. Our access is through Jesus and him alone. And in him, we need never fear rejection. Now look, no matter how well I preach to you, I cannot bring you near God myself. Can't do it. No matter how well the music team sings or plays, they can't lead you into God's presence. Songs, prayers, sacrifices, tithes, acts of service, all cannot make us presentable to God. Even Worship itself cannot escort us sinners into the presence of a holy God. And really, no other person is our worship leader in the truest sense of the term. Yes, we have pastors and preachers, singers and music leaders, all with roles to play, but we don't make it possible for people to worship. Only Jesus does that. Look ahead to the next chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. This is a really powerful passage. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and not only Jesus went to the holy places, we can now go into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now here we see that, that Jesus has made worship not only knowable and possible, but it's desirable. Right? Like it, it is an astonishing privilege to come before God's holy presence. Therefore, since we have confidence, confidence that God wants us to come, that will survive it. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Like, there's the gospel right there, and there's life in it. It's a living way in. And since we have a, a great priest over the house of God, who is now welcoming us and ushering us into God's presence, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's beautiful. 
now, through Jesus, we get to draw near to God himself. Boldly, passionately, excitedly, reverently, gratefully, and joyfully. Why wouldn't we ever want to do that? Like nothing should keep us from worshiping God. Not busyness, not fatigue, not work, not school, not sports, games, not anxiety, not pain, not personal preferences. This is what we get to do. To gather together and worship the Lord. Now, I preached those very words or similar words mere weeks before a pandemic did keep us from gathering. But even then, in, in clearly unideal circumstances, I think that only proved these points. For one, we weren't prevented from worshiping God, even from home, because we can worship in spirit and truth through Jesus. But also, though for those who love the Lord, it demonstrated firsthand how immensely valuable worship is and how much better it is when we do gather to worship God together. So I stand by what I said. Nothing should ever really keep us from worshiping God. Did you know that true worshipers are what God most desires? It's true, because God rightly most desires his own glory, and we most glorify him through worship. But he's not just after worship in an abstract sense. He's after people to be worshipers, right? Remember what Jesus says in John 4, and you can flip back there to see this. In John 4, verses 23 and 24, it says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this basically means God is seeking people to worship him the right way through Jesus. You could say God is looking for you to worship him. He desires this. He wants it. And how, just how much did God want this? He sacrifices only beloved son in order to make it happen. A.W. Tozer says that Jesus' purpose in redemption is to make worshipers out of rebels. To make worshipers out of rebels. You and I were all rebels against God and his ways. But we were all created for so much more. God designed us to be worshipers, like it's inbuilt in us but then evil corrupts us to be more prone to be idolaters. We tend to to worship our jobs, our money, our comfort, our stuff, our kids, our friends, 
our sexuality, our hobbies, our fun, our vacations, our technology. This could go on more than we tend to worship God. We're such rebels. And that's why Jesus came to live, die, and rise, to make things right, to, to restore creation. And part of that meant to take dirty, sinful rebels like us and purify us and forgive us so that we can come into God's spiritual presence freely to worship him. Therefore, the gospel is not just a theme in our worship. It is the indispensable foundation of it and the fuel for it. When we gather to worship God together, it's not just some religious habit that we do. It is us aligning our lives with the greatest purposes God created us for. And us getting to play our part in the grandest story to ever take place. Now, amazing as worship is, that hasn't kept it from becoming a point of contention. Right? Like, leave it to us sinful, selfish humans to to muck up such a glorious reality. If you're old enough, you'll remember the so-called worship wars of a few decades ago even a couple decades, when, when Christians sadly fought over a variety of preferences surrounding worship. And when you boil it down, those wars were over what should shape a church's worship. Really, what should form it? What should make it? And modern culture or church tradition? Personal preferences or others' preferences? Reverence or exuberance, depth or simplicity, familiarity or novelty. Now, I believe that there is actually one thing that should absolutely shape our worship. But it's not culture, style, tradition, preferences, ministry strategies, or anything like that. Our worship should be shaped and governed by the word of God. After all, if worship is supposed to be all about God, for his glory, and it's through God's gospel that we can worship in the first place, then it stands to reason that his opinion on worship should matter the most of all. So, this is the way I put it, that the way we worship God should be shaped by and soaked in the word of God. The way we worship God, you can say permeated, but the the way we worship God should be shaped by and soaked in the Word of God. Go ahead and turn over to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Colossians 3. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is giving instructions for the church, and as is His custom in many of his letters, he's already taught the gospel first, establishing what Christ has done for us before telling us what we should do for him. And we'll start reading today in verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And then catch verse 16 especially. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Obviously, he thinks we should be overflowing with thanks, with gratitude. Right? He said it three times. Be thankful. Do this with thankfulness in your hearts to God, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, I mean, there's many things we could be thankful for, but just stop and, and thank the Lord today for his word. And thank the Lord that he not only took notice of us and loved us, but that in order to save us, he spoke his word to us. It's a wonderful grace of God that he has revealed himself to us through his word. So thank the Lord that, that he inspired people to write down the very words of God, then that they have been preserved for centuries, translated into languages that we can understand, and can even now today transform our lives. And then look again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's a picture of entering a home and taking up full residence there. The word should dwell in us richly or thoroughly as opposed to barely or marginally. The message paraphrase says to let the word have the run of the house. Now we plan on moving across town this year into a new home for our family. And when we do... We don't plan on just setting up camp in the front yard. Neither do we hope to just inhabit only a room or two in the house. We plan to, to unpack our boxes, spread out, move into all of the house, filling cabinets and closets, arranging furniture, decorating, remodeling, landscaping, and then Hosting parties, right? Sleeping, eating, working, playing there. In other words, do we plan to live or dwell richly in the home? We as a church should essentially be handing the keys of our house over to God. Letting his word move in and take over the place taking up residence among us, unpacking, organizing, filling up spaces, redecorating, remodeling. Like We should treat the word like the owner of the house who has the run of the place, as opposed to treating God's word like a guest who comes to visit now and then or is only allowed to take over the kitchen but not the family room or the bedroom. Or to drop the metaphor, which is restricted to only certain parts of our worship. God's word should permeate every part of our worship as a church. 
our prayers, songs, sermons, communion, fellowship, giving, serving, everything. Remember that, that worship is our response to God. Theologian John Stott tells us that God must speak to us before we have any liberty to speak to him. He must disclose to us who he is before we can offer him what we are in acceptable worship. The worship of God is always a response to the word of God. Scripture wonderfully directs and enriches our worship. In verse 16 here, we see that the, how the word should be shaping what I would call our exhortation. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, teaching would be explaining and expounding upon what God's word says. Admonishing would be warning and correcting based on what God's word says. So, I literally just taught you about teaching and admonishing right now. And if I say that we must faithfully do this or else fail as a church... And I've admonished us. Do you know that, that preaching or hearing the word of God is actually a key form of worship for the church? For an excellent biblical example of this, think of the way Ezra the scribe led worship. And you can flip over to this if you'd like back in Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8 where this scene is recorded. And I'm just going to skim through it. Verse 1, it says, And all the people gathered as one man, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse 3, He read from it from early morning until midday in the presence of Israel. Or sorry, in the presence of the men and the women and from those who could understand. Now that's a worship service, right? <laughs> early morning until midday. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. See what happened? I mean, people obviously worshipped during the reading of the word of God. Ezra blessed the Lord as he preached. And then the word led the people further and deeper into worship themselves. And so should it be for us. The word should shape our exhortations. But that's not all we see in Colossians 3. It should also be shaping our exaltations. And again, in verse 16 there it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, our singing is another way to let God's word dwell in us richly as we worship God. I, think, I believe this means that our singing really should be crammed full of truth. Our songs should be 
inform by Scripture and quote Scripture and refer to Scripture and allude to Scripture and reflect Scripture and echo the themes of Scripture and remind us of it. And this is why we at Calvary place higher value on the content or the lyrics of a song than on its popularity or its catchiness or its tune or its groove. Now, I think you could put lame music to truth and end up insulting truth. Like the quality and excellence of our music and our singing does matter. Our, create, our creativity matters. But the truths being communicated by the songs matter more. There are songs that you'll hear on CHRI or on Spotify or on YouTube that we won't sing here. Because they may not reflect truth very well or at all. Now, yes, there is a place for things like simplicity or repetition. You can find those in the Bible. Just as there is a place for complexity and, and deeper theology. The key issue is truth. Like, Are the songs we're singing teaching truth to us? Helping our hearts express truth. Paul mentions three different types of songs we should sing. It says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And there's no real consensus on what the actual differences are between these three for Paul's audience. But clearly, there should be a variety of kinds of songs used by the church. Like God is too great, his word is too rich, and his gospel is too marvelous to be expressed through only one form of song or singing. So the word should be shaping our exhortation and our exaltation. And then really, this kind of worship should be shaping our everything. Like verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now this goes way beyond our corporate worship into absolutely anything we do in life. Doing something in the name of Jesus is a way of saying you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it as his representative in order to direct attention to him, to praise him. So just, just think through our days. Are we doing everything in Jesus' name? That's not just some magic mantra we say. Are we doing it to honor him, giving thanks to him? Like ask yourself, am I eating and traveling and doing school, changing diapers, washing dishes, talking with colleagues, hanging with your friends, playing with your kids, using, using your phone, etc., etc. Like all with this as my primary motive and aim, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And you see, in all of our daily activities, there's a way for us to worship God. Giving thanks can turn any moment into a moment of worship. But 
since we're focusing today on our worship as a church family, let's just remember everything we do, absolutely everything as a church should be done out of gratitude to God and in order to glorify him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, there's a very similar passage to this one, just a few pages prior in Ephesians 5. And you can make one final turnover there at this time. Ephesians 5, as I think it emphasizes a critical element of our worship that may be overlooked at times, and that is other people. Almost all significant moments in our lives tend to take place alongside other people. And I don't think that the people involved are just incidental in those experiences. I think they play a key part in making those experiences what they are. And the same goes for our worship. The people around you will inevitably play key roles in the way you worship for better and for worse. On the worst side, they may distract you or annoy you or set a poor example for you. On the better side, they may inspire you or encourage you or set a positive example for you. Examples of, of listening or singing or praying, which can move you to do the same. Like we are molded in the way that we worship by the people we worship with. And realize, other people won't just impact the worship experiences you have. You will also affect theirs as well. Let's see what Ephesians 5 has to say. In verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So, community worship is part of, you could say, walking wisely and redeeming the time and being filled with the Spirit. And notice, we're to be connected with one another even as we worship God. Like, it doesn't detract from God's glory to also pay attention to other people. Thus, worshiping God in community focuses on both the Lord and one another. Worshiping God in community focuses on both the Lord and one another. Like, we're obviously meant to address God, right, in our worship. It wouldn't be worship otherwise. Paul uses musical imagery when he says to make melody to the Lord. Make melody to the Lord. Like, a melody is the dominant line or the, the sequence of notes in a song that we know a song by as opposed to, to harmony, rhythm, or tempo, which we can adjust fairly easily. But if you change the melody, it basically changes the whole song. So what does it mean for us to, to make melody to the Lord? 
On a basic level, it means we should actually open our mouths and sing to God. Like the, the primary focus of our praise should be directed to Him. He should be our primary focus. But also, the music we sing is to be reflected in our hearts. It says... Sorry, I lost my place here. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So it's also an attitude, a melodious, thankful disposition towards God. Now, when we gather for worship, many of us come ready to praise God wholeheartedly, while many others of us come distracted by good and bad things. Many of us will come weary, burdened, or anxious. We're likely worried to varying degrees about a whole host of issues. Right? The state of the world around us, in politics, and warfare, and the climate, and morality, or the, the state of our lives in our relationships and conflicts and finances and work or health. And so Bob Coughlin asked this, what size does God appear to be when our mind is preoccupied with all the cares, worries, and concerns of life? Very small. But God is not small. He is great. The first priority of our time together is to magnify the Lord. We want to help people remember that God is bigger than their problems and joys, greater than their sorrows and successes, more significant than their tests and triumphs. Because we lose perspective so easily, God needs to become bigger in our eyes. He never changes in size, it just seems that way. Uh, and think of just going outside and looking up at the stars. Hey, how they appear like tiny pinpricks of light. And the further into the city you get, the dimmer they are, right? They're twinkling dots of light in a dark sky. Pretty, but not spectacular. But then if you take a look at a star through this high-powered telescope, jaw-dropping, blinding, they're raging balls of fire that dwarf our world. Now, the stars don't change. But our vision of them changes when we magnify them. And that is our primary aim in worship, to place our eyes back up to the telescope and magnify the glory of God. So we can't help but thank God and praise, and trust him. And as much as our first focus is to magnify God together, he isn't meant to be our only focus. We are, in fact, also meant to address one another in song. As it says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This means that while our hearts and our adoration should be fixated on God, our eyes and our voices should also be focused vertically and horizontally. 
Psalm 34.3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name together. And sometimes when we do this in song, we'll address God directly. Like, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. And sometimes we'll speak to God in the third person, directing our words to each other, yet no less praising God. Who is like our God? There's no one. In the Bible, the vast majority of references to singing talk about singing with others. Why do you think that is? It's not like God doesn't appreciate it when you sing alone the shower, the car, something. But it's an especially beautiful thing when the church shows a united front in worship. Through our worship, God is actually knitting the fabric of our lives together. We verbally and audibly express the bonds we share in Christ by the Holy Spirit. As hymn writers Keith and Kristen Getty put so well, All our individual stories meet at the cross-section of the worship service. We are reminded that we are not alone. We are members of a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-everything family. We are reminded that we are not self-sufficient, for we need a Savior. We are reminded that we are not the center of the universe, but just one voice and heart among the great worldwide throng of people praising the one who is. And we remind each other of all this as we sing together. And this is a reason why virtual worship will only ever be a subpar substitute for gathered worship. Like it's a, it is a blessing if you're sick or traveling, but it tends to only feed yourself, not others. And worship isn't about you. Gathering together reminds us of this vital truth that worship is about God. And then secondarily, it's about us. Not me. Not you. And you never know what an encouragement you're singing Maybe to someone else around you. It may also be an evangelistic witness to someone who needs to know Christ. When we set us to set time aside, make sacrifices, set our differences aside, set our hearts together on worshiping another, it's a huge witness in our self-obsessed, entertainment-driven individualistic culture. In Ephesians 5, right after his commands about singing, Paul says this in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as we worship together, it seems to then impact the way we relate to one another. Once we're reminded of God's greatness and and led to be thankful instead of entitled, it's much harder than turn to each other and go, you need to give me my way. Thus, worship helps us let go of our pride, 
humbly show preference to others, submit to one another, which then goes to help preserve the unity of the body, the peace we share. Is it any wonder that when Christians were banned from singing together in 2020, the church's unity became more fiercely fractured than many of us have ever seen? Now, that's not the sole cause, of course. But tear apart community worship, and you can tear apart the community. So you want to avoid this. You want to avoid the, the pitfalls of, of selfishness in your own life. This is a way to do it. We worship God in community. We recalibrate our attention away from ourselves and onto God and other people. And when we learn to do this together week after week, it reshapes our hearts and our lives. We learn what a privilege it is to come before God's presence, to respond to him and, and what he's done for us through Christ by letting the word of Christ dwell richly among us, letting it, it shape all we do, and by focusing both on God and each other as we sing and make melody together. Worship changes us. In great ways. It grows us together and it glorifies God. And tell me, brothers and sisters, what could ever be more important than that? Father in heaven, we pray that you would capture our hearts with your glory above everything else in this life that would distract us and seek to pull us away. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as people and as a people. Lord, you be glorified in what you see and hear in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.